Good evening and welcome to the Sydney Ideas International Public Lecture Series at the University of Sydney. I am Meredith Hall, Program Manager for Sydney Ideas. We are very pleased to co-present tonight's lecture by Professor Julian Savalescu with the Centre for Independent Studies. I would like to thank Julian in particular for agreeing to come to Sydney for this lecture at very late notice after our previous speaker, Kari Stephenson, had to cancel his trip to Australia last week. So thank you, Julian. Tonight's lecture will run for 45 minutes and will be followed by a 30-minute question and answer session. So please keep your questions until the end. And we have set up two microphones at the bottom of the aisles here for your questions. I'll just quickly mention two other Sydney Ideas lectures that are coming up this month. On the 21st of August, UK philosopher Stephen Law will join us for the Sydney Ideas series with a lecture based on his recent book, The War for Children's Minds. For anyone who has been following the debate about values in education, I encourage you to come along and hear his very interesting ideas on liberalism and moral education. And on the 27th of August, a Canadian academic, Thomas Homer Dixon, will join us for his lecture, The Upside of Down, Catastrophe, Creativity and the Renewal of Civilisation. Last week's Guardian Weekly called Thomas Homer Dixon one of the best informed and most brilliant writers on global affairs today and said he may not be a household name yet, but he deserves to be. But for tonight, I would like to welcome Rob Lobley, a senior lecturer, sorry, lecturer in immunology at the University of Sydney and the Chairman of the Ethics Review Committee at the Sydney Southwest Area Health Service, who will introduce Professor Julian Savalescu and his work to you. Thank you, Rob. Thanks, Meredith. Well, it's a great pleasure to, uh, to welcome uh, Julian back to our shores. Um, he's been uh, working in the UK for several years now as the Uhiro Chair of Practical Ethics at the Un University of Oxford, and the director of the Centre for uh, Practical Ethics there. And he's also director of the program on ethics and the new biosciences in the James Martin 21st Century School. Um, I first met Julian in his former life when he was working at, as the director of uh, the Ethics of Genetics Unit at the Murdoch uh, Institute at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. And I bumped into him from time to time uh, at, at various uh, meetings, and I've always found him stimulating, challenging, sometimes heterodox. But uh, and tonight, I'm sure I'm sure he'll he'll stimulate you, maybe even make you, um, you know, sufficiently hot under the collar to leap up at the end and ask some hard questions from him. So, Julian, thanks very much, and look forward to hearing what you have to say. Thank you very much. We'll just... Well, thank you very much to, um, to Rob for that very kind introduction and to the University of Sydney and to Meredith for inviting me and giving me this opportunity to share some ideas with you. Um, I'm not sure how stimulating I'll be tonight because I've had about three hours of sleep, um, but I'll try and um, talk a little bit about some work uh, I've been doing over the last couple of years on a European project uh, and also about my general approach. So just before I start, let me just sort of give you an overview of um, how I'm going to approach this issue. People sometimes accuse me of being a utilitarian, 
And a utilitarian is um, somebody who holds the moral view that uh, the right action is the action which maximises human well-being. Um, so you, the greatest good for the greatest number is a sort of popular formulation of this. Um, and I think that, and this is a kind of rough way of putting the position, um, I think there are two basic positions in, in um, practical ethics. There's utilitarianism and people who uh, are utilitarians. And then there are people who deny that they're utilitarians. Um, because when it comes down to it, most of us think that human well-being is very important. And I'm not actually a utilitarian, but I, the position I always start off with these debates is, is what is the utilitarian position? Because if you don't adopt the utilitarian position, um, somebody's life is going worse as a result of what you've chosen to do or chose not to do. So you have to have a pretty good reason to choose a course of action where somebody's life is going to go worse, they're going to suffer, they're going to be less happy. Now, there could be such good reasons, um, but we better be clear what they are. And in this debate, I'm going to look at some of the recent research from biology and psychology that gives us reason to believe that how well our lives go, how much well-being we have, how happy we are, has important not just social determinants and cultural determinants, but has important biological determinants. So the utilitarian position says that insofar as we can change our biology to make our lives go better, we should do that. And I think that's basically true. There might be good reasons that you'll bring forward at the end for why we shouldn't do that, but we better start off by saying, why aren't we doing it? So... I'm going to look at the use of what I call new science, um, but these are, we call them in, in Oxford Ethics of the New Biosciences, um, things like cloning and stem cell research, genetics, artificial reproduction, um, for the use not just of the treatment and prevention of human disease, but to make people's lives go better. And I think that we're going, we're on the sort of verge of a, of a kind of revolution where the sorts of medical and scientific research that's traditionally been used to treat and prevent disease is going to be used to radically change our lives uh, and to enable us to lead better lives. Now, what I'm going to talk about is human enhancement, the use of technology to, to make better human beings. And I've been writing a bit on... Um, performance enhancement in sport, which I can talk about later. I'm not going to talk about that in detail here. But there's actually going to be... A, I've got an opinion th thing coming out in the Sydney Morning Herald tomorrow on that. But we already embrace um, enhancement technologies in many areas of our life. Cosmetic surgery, um, the, the whole beauty industry is testimony to uh, the interest people have in being more physically attractive. In sport, we've had... Uh, evidence that athletes use doping agents, human risk report, now anabolic steroids, growth hormone, um, to improve their performance. Um, in the area of cognitive performance, there are uh, a number of new drugs that have been shown or are being shown to improve memory and improve um, cognitive processing. So, for example, the, the US military uh, has its pilots um, flying over Iraq on a cocktail of modavigil or modafinil and Ritalin. So 
as as, typically, as often happens, the, the military is often in the forefront of developing these technologies like the internet, which then filters down to, to the rest of society. I mean, we, we use caffeine and, and nicotine to, to increase alertness, but these sorts of agents are going to be much more effective. Um, Ritalin is used by American college students to improve performance in exams. It's used to treat attention deficit disorder to improve impulse control. It also improves memory. Mood enhancement, making ourselves feel happier or improving our mood. Um, people have used Prozac. I'm not sure if Carl Elliott is, is he's, he's in Sydney, I heard. He's written a, he's written a lot on, on this sort of issue. Um, and, of course, alcohol is the commonest drug uh, which is used to improve sociability and, um, and mood. Recreational drugs are another example. Even in the most private areas of our lives, we aren't happy with what nature delivers up. Uh, as a part of normal ageing, the blood vessels narrow, and when the blood vessels to the penis narrow, um, men lose their potency. So uh, there is a roughly a 12% decline in erectile function every decade. This occurs normally. It's not caused by a disease. But uh, recently, the drug Viagra, which was initially developed to treat blood pressure and then found to be of use in impotence in diabetics, has been used by normal men who are just ageing normally to improve their sexual performance. But much more radical um, enhancements are, are on the horizon. Um, when you talk to stem cell scientists about what they think the greatest ethical issues are from their research, many of them say, well it's going to be the radical prolongation of life. Because if you could um, simply cure all diseases at the moment, people would only live about another 12 years um, because of ageing. But with the use of regenerative medicine, you could actually intervene in the ageing process and get people to live potentially beyond 120. But I'm not going to talk about longevity. I want to talk about the way we live um, and the quality of our life and the prospects that biology... Uh, and biological interventions have for altering who we are and how we live. Some people are sceptical about the possibility of altering our biology and changing uh, our nature. And this isn't a kind of evidence-based slide, but um, if you want to see the power of um, biology and its association with um, the nature of beings, look at one of the greatest informal genetic experiments, the breeding of dogs. There are roughly 300 different breeds of dogs and if you take a walk through the park, you'll see the radical differences between them. Some are big and some are small, some are vicious, some are placid, some are stupid, some are intelligent, some are hardworking, some are lazy. This is all genetic. Um, it's a result of breeding over 10,000 years from a small group of canids and wolves, selective breeding. And what this shows us is that by using basic genetic principles, um, we can bring out certain characteristics. There is no way that you can train a chihuahua to beat a Doberman in a fight. It doesn't have the ability. You can disable a Doberman by smashing it over the head with a hammer or depriving it of food, but you can never turn a chihuahua into a Doberman because it doesn't have the genetic potential. There is no reason to think that human beings are any different to dogs in this regard. Um, we are basically animals and the characteristics that we display, the differences that we have, 
are, of course, partly social and partly as a result of the nurturing that we've had and the experiences and the choices that we've made, but it's also partly and to significant degree biological. There's interesting research coming out of other animal experiments that shows just how powerful biology can be. In one um, recently reported study, researchers took genetic material from the brains of a group of characteristically hard-working monkeys and introduced it it to um, another species of of lazy monkeys, and the lazy monkeys became hard-working. In an even more provocative experiment, researchers took um, genetic material again from the reward centre of the brain of a group of characteristically monogamous voles. These are small rat-like animals that inhabit parts of the United States and introduced it into um, a group of characteristically polygamous meadow voles and the polygamous meadow voles displayed monogamous behaviour. They they changed their behaviour from having many mates to having one mate. Neuroscience, and we're developing a program on the ethical implications of advances in neuroscience in Oxford, is making significant advances into the understanding uh, of our characteristics and in the treatment and prevention of disease. So, and again, another very interesting piece of research, researchers created a um, rat model of the human disease, Huntington's disease. And uh, what they showed when they developed these rats that would develop a syndrome like Huntington's disease, which is a form of dementia associated with abnormal movements um, in humans, what they showed was that you could prevent the onset of Huntington's disease by by, uh, giving these rats Prozac, um, which stimulated um, the growth of, of neurons and prevented the onset of the disease, nerve growth factors, but also by giving the rats a stimulating environment of complicated mazes and coloured baubles to play with. All three of these interventions stopped the onset of what was a genetic disease, and all three of them changed the biology of rats. Now, when you think about the human condition, the human brain is basically as large as it can be. This is, this, this is a baby inside the womb. You'll see its, its head's relatively tightly packed. We've reached the maximum cranial size and brain size that, that humans can have and, and be delivered through normal vaginal delivery. There's no reason in principle why you couldn't today give children soon after birth nerve growth factors that would radically in, increase the size of, of the human brain and its cognitive capacity. So this is not radical science fiction, it hasn't been done, but it's on the horizon. The sorts of research that these researchers are doing on Huntington's disease um, will yield understandings and interventions that may not just prevent disease but enhance human performance. Behavioural genetics is an area of genetics that seeks to understand not what are the genetic causes of disease but what are the genetic contributions to our psychological type our personality traits, our intelligence and behaviour in general. And these are some of the projects that are going on in behavioural genetics. Essentially, in a nutshell, all measurable characteristics of personality, the kind of people we are, um, has some genetic component, including the big five, neuroticism, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness and openness to experience. And most of these conditions won't depend on a single gene but on many genes and there won't be a one-to-one relationship, but genetics will have some 
and in some cases a significant influence on our personality. So, for example, anxiousness and novelty-seeking have been even thought to be related to single genes. So we don't yet, we haven't yet unravelled the role of, um, of these genes in our character uh, and our intelligence and our personality type, but I think there's enough reason to believe that we will uh, gain significant understanding in the next 10 years. Importantly, genetics has also been found to play an important role in our mood. Basically, what researchers call this hedonic tone, how just happy you are from day to day. And this is more related to our biology, our genetics, than to our circumstances. So some people just tend to be happy and some people tend to be sad. And there's not much you can do about that by changing your environment. If you're going to change that, you probably have to change your biology. Uh, one gene has been associated in one family in Holland with um, criminal behaviour in violent, aggressive outbursts and arson, rape and so on in half of the males who have a mutation that affects the level of monoamine oxidase in the brain. Now, that's one family. But when this um, gene was and this substance was looked at in New Zealand, in a very large group of people who had been imprisoned, it was found to correlate significantly with criminal behaviour when coupled with a deprived social upbringing. So there will be determinants, some biological determinants of aggression and even criminal behaviour. We have now the opportunity to intervene in the natural lottery in various ways. Firstly, the most reliable way at the moment is through genetic selection. We've employed this as human beings by mating when we seek out a mate which sends signals of reproductive fitness. Um, we've more recently been able to do this by using prenatal diagnosis, testing fetuses, and even more recently by using genetic diagnosis of embryos called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. Now, this tests for single gene disorders, um, and it's been used for a range of diseases, but also for sex selection. More recently, there's been an advance in this technique known as pre-implantation genetic haplotyping, which multiplies the genetic component from the cells of the embryo. So you can test not just for a, a few conditions, a few chromosomal or genetic abnormalities, but for thousands of genes. So this opens the door to testing embryos for a whole range of conditions, not just whether they have Down syndrome or cystic fibrosis. Um, at the moment, it costs about $100 US to $3,000 to test for a single gene. It's quite expensive still. But these DNA microarrays or chips are still in infancy, in their infancy at present. But um, within five, five years, it's predicted that we will be able to um, sequence an entire genome from an individual for just $50,000 US dollars. And within 20 years, it will be cheap enough to do every gene on every person. In fact, there are companies at this moment looking to do whole genome scans of individuals on a private basis. So at the moment, I think you can test, you can look at your ancestry on National Geographic or something and see where, which part of Africa you came out of. But what you will be able to do fairly soon is submit your genome to one of these companies and they'll tell you, they'll, they'll, they'll relate um, each of each of your genes to what are called SNPs um, from the human genome map and tell you what predispositions to which diseases you'll have. They might, they might come out with a figure like you're 33% likely to get type 2 diabetes. 
Um, but they will also be looking at non-disease uh, SNPs as they emerge, and these can be constantly integrated into the model. So this is testing, understanding ourselves or understanding what our children are going to be like and selecting our children on the basis of this. In the further future, well, now, we can also intervene to improve um, ourselves and our children through the use of pharmacology. So doping in sports is an example. This can be successful. The Ritalin and modafinil examples are the sort of early phase cognitive enhancers. But further into the future, uh, there's no reason to believe we won't be able to genetically manipulate uh, embryos or ourselves. Um, I'm not sure if I've got this slide later on. Um, I think I have, but it shows a fluorescent rabbit. And this fluorescent rabbit, let me just see if it's in there. There it is um, on the next slide. So this fluorescent rabbit is called Alba, and it was produced a number of years ago by French scientists for an artist called Eduardo Katz. And it, it, it's created by transferring a gene, fluorescent gene, from a jellyfish into a rabbit. And uh, the fact that it fluoresces shows that the gene has been successfully integrated and expresses itself. So it's not causing cancer in the rabbit. Uh, there's no reason why we couldn't create a fluorescent human being today in exactly the same way as we created a fluorescent rabbit. So we have the technology to introduce genes from other animals uh, into humans and to create new kinds of humans. Um, the, on the right-hand side of the slide is, is a, what's called a, a liger. This is a cross between a lion and a tiger formed by crossbreeding, like how you produce a mule. But the one on the bottom left is a geep. Now, this is a, a new life form, a hybrid life form, or chimera, which is a cross between a sheep and a goat. But it wasn't produced by getting fertilisation from one species to another. It was created by just fusing a sheep and a goat embryo. And there's no reason to believe that we couldn't do this today by fusing a human and a chimp embryo. Um, I was in Harvard uh, in March... I can't remember when it was, I think it was March. And um, Doug Melton, who's one of the world's most famous stem cell scientists, said with six million US dollars he could, he could create a viable human chimp chimera. Um, and he said that would be interesting from a scientific point of view because you could create various chimeras to look at the point at which language development occurs. So you could create these um, beings today uh, with the technology that we have today. So this isn't radical science fiction. This is technology that is, is fairly simple. So what I've tried to sketch to you is there's going to be the opportunity to, to change ourselves and, and perhaps to change ourselves for the better. So the ethical question is, should we intervene in our own biology? And uh, I think we should. And I think we should uh, intervene where it makes our lives go better, not just make us more healthy. So I'm going to give you three arguments now. My view of practical ethics, and again, I, I, I should give this caveat, I don't necessarily believe that what I'm saying to you. It's not, you know, I don't want to convert you. Um, what I think practical ethics is about is putting arguments in the public sphere and stimulating people to think for themselves about what their own positions are on this. Uh, and the reason why I'm giving you these is they're very rare to hear people arguing in favour of enhancement. Most people say this is... Um, playing God or creating a, a Gattaca-like two-tiered society or that it will create inequality or that we should never meddle with the human genome and so on. I think there's good reasons for the opposite view. I'm going to give you three arguments now. 
The first one is that we, if we choose not to enhance ourselves, um, this is wrong. So think of this thought experiment. Imagine that you've got a couple and they're born with a child with a stunning intellect. So let's just say that you can test you know, the child very early on in life and, and you know the child's IQ is going to be 160 or something. And, um, but the child has a slight metabolic abnormality such that it needs a special diet with a special vitamin. Okay? Or else the, the IQ will just drop back to normal, drop back to 100, which is the, which is the mean for the population. Now, if the couple decided not to provide this special vitamin, we would think it, it's wrong because they could have had a child with a stunning intellect and as a result of what they've failed to do, the child's end up worse off than the child. Now, if you think intellect is not a correlate of what makes life go well, pick what you do think. So, say, say being able to relate to other people, being able to understand their feelings and emotions. Okay. Whatever you think is, is some sort of correlate of what makes life go well. I'm just using IQ because I can put some numbers on. So we think that they've, they might have a good reason not to provide the vitamins. So it might be expensive, it might be difficult to obtain, they might have other things like a sick child to look after, and that, that might excuse them. But in the absence of some reason not to provide this vitamin, we'd, we'd think that they're doing the wrong thing. But now take a second group of parents, and these parents have a child who's just born normal with an IQ of 100. But this child has the same metabolic abnormality such that if the child's given the same vitamin, the IQ will rise to 160. And in this case, the parents also decide not to give the vitamin. In, it, in this case, exactly the same outcome occurs. You have a child who's got an IQ that's less than it could have been, a child whose life goes worse than it could have gone. I think that these parents act or fail to act in an equally wrong manner. They might have a good reason which would excuse them, but absent some good reason, they're arguably abusing their child. Now, substitute for diet and vitamin, any biological intervention like gene therapy or Ritalin or whatever sort of intervention is actually effective at improving IQ or performance or empathy or whatever fact you think is, feature that you think correlates with a good life. You see straightforwardly an argument running that people have an obligation to enhance their children because the child's life goes better. The second argument is that we already accept the premises that ground the enhancement debate when we accept environmental interventions like education and diet to improve our children. We train our children to be well-behaved, cooperative, intelligent, um, and we provide the best schools we can for them. We give them love and attention because we think that these things will, will help them to become better people and develop in a better way. These interventions do not act mysteriously. They actually change the brain structure of children. Um, they change the nature of the neuronal connections. Environmental interventions like love and education change biology. In one famous, again, example, rats who were given the stimulating um, environment had the same brain changes as those rats given drugs. And indeed, rats who have been denied a mother have showed brain changes that they've carried on through life that were even passed on to the next generation. So environment changes biology, and if environment changes biology for the better, why should we not accept environmental interven biological interventions that have exactly the same effects? The third argument is that since we already accept the treatment and prevention of disease, 
we accept the values which are ground enhancement. Because health is not something that is good just in itself. Health is valuable to us because it allows us to do certain sorts of things. It allows us to live our lives. It allows us to do our jobs, to relate to our families, to achieve our goals, to be happy. People often trade health for other things of value in their life when they smoke or engage in risky activities uh, and threaten their health through their behaviour. What ultimately matters to us is not whether we're healthy, but how well our lives go. And the reason that we treat disease and improve people's health is because we think their well-being is important. But if we think their well-being is important, if there are other biological determinants of their well-being besides their health, we better also think about changing those biological determinants. Now, it's true that health is a major determinant of our well-being. If you have cancer, if you have a disease which will kill you prematurely, if you have Alzheimer's disease, these things profoundly affect your lives. And it's true that we can most improve people's lives by altering whether they have disease. But that doesn't mean that other non-disease interventions won't have some, and in some cases, significant effects on our well-being. So here's an example. People say to you, well, you know, what, what's going to change? What's, what's going to change how well our lives go besides disease? Well, here's one example, self-control or impulse control. Now, the extreme example of this or the lack of it is attention deficit disorder where children have very poor impulse control and people use Ritalin to treat this. But it's, there's reason to believe that even apart from that extreme end of the spectrum, degrees of self-control, a reasonable amount of self-control, can quite significantly affect how your life goes. So in the 1960s, a famous psychologist called Walter Michel conducted a famous set of impulse control experiments where he put four-year-old children in front of a single marshmallow. And he said to the children, if you don't eat this marshmallow when I go out of the room, when I return, I will give you two marshmallows. Now, predictably, as soon as he left the room, some children just ate the marshmallow. But some of them devised strategies to control their behaviour, withstand the temptation and not eat the marshmallow. And they were given two. When he followed these children up a decade later, he found that those who were able to withstand the temptation of a marshmallow had more friends, better academic performance and more motivation to succeed. And when he further followed them up, they had higher SAT scores or university entrance scores, uh, and this was more strongly correlated than with this marshmallow withstanding ability or um, impulse control than was their IQ. And indeed, there's reason to believe that poor impulse control is associated with um, low socioeconomic status and um, conflict with the law. So something that I'd want my children to have is some degree of self-control. We don't want them to be constipated, um, but we do want them to be able to order their life and withstand immediate um, impulses and temptations. So there are other things that people, philosophers, have called all-purpose goods which seem to make life go better no matter what your view of a good life is. So intelligence, having good memory, foresight, patience and so on. Even our moral character, I've just written a paper on moral enhancement um, and there's reason to believe even our moral nature has some biological underpinnings that's manipulable. So for example, you can increase people's trust um, by giving them oxytocin. 
you can increase their cooperativeness by giving them serotonin reuptake inhibitors like Prozac. And again, in one famous experiment, um, researchers trained monkeys to produce, to, to perform a task. And if they did it successfully, they were rewarded with um, a token, which was either a, um, which involved either a grape, which was sweet and they enjoyed, or a cucumber. And after one of these exercises, a monkey who successfully completed the task was given a cucumber, which the monkey liked less than having the grape. And in an adjacent cage, um, they gave that monkey's mate a grape when the monkey hadn't done the task. And the first monkey became extremely angry, the argument going that this was the monkey's sense that this was unfair, that the other monkey didn't deserve the grape. So even monkeys have a sense of fairness and desert uh, that no doubt is biologically ingrained. So empathy, imagination, sociopathic personality disorder is an example where these sorts of things are lacking. Okay, um, even um, how we experience the world and others around us is going to have um, biological determinants. So when I, I, this is part of this I gave as a lecture tour for a medical research group. And this story came out as I was giving the last lecture. Genes, not men, may hold the key to female pleasure. Genes accounted for 31% of the chance of having an orgasm during intercourse in women and 51% during masturbation. And the study concluded that genes um, influence uh, the ability to gain sexual satisfaction. Now, that means that that's potentially manipulable through biological interventions, and this is not going to be... Um, necessarily dealt with by better sexual techniques, more love or social or cultural interventions. Those things are important and they can influence our experiences, but so too can our biology. Okay, so what I've tried to argue here is that what matters is, what matters, maybe not the only thing, but is human well-being, not only the treatment and prevention of disease and our biology affects our opportunities and abilities and how we experience the world, and the essence of our humanity is to choose to be better and to have better lives, and the biological route is no different to the environmental. So biological manipulation to increase the opportunity of having a good life is ethical. There are basically four ways you can change people's states and how well their lives go. One is to change their natural environment. That's what humans did through most of human history. Build a dam so you've got water. Uh, build shelter so that you're not cold. The second one is to change the social environment, create laws and institutions that promote cooperativeness and allow people's goals to be aligned. The third one is to change their psychology, and for the last 20 or 30 years we've engaged in psychological self-help and counselling and therapy to try to change our psychology to be happier, to be better adjusted, and now we can change our biology. So... Um, let me pass over the, the preservation of humanity. One of the interesting things, I think, about this enhancement debate is that people often give the objection that this might be good for the individual but bad for society um, because it will create a two-tiered society. Um, let me... I can't remember whether I have slides on this, but let me just say immediately how we choose to deploy these interventions is up to us. So when I was running a conference um, on human enhancement and Jim Watson, who discovered DNA, was there, he drew a, a graph of the normal distribution of IQ and he drew a, a line through the bottom one-third 
And he said, these are the group who I don't think will be able to compete in a technologically advanced society. These are the ones we should raise up. Now, I'm not suggesting that we do that, but what we could do if we were concerned about equality or the worst off um, would be simply to make IQ enhancements available to those at the lowest end of the spectrum. That wouldn't create inequality, that would create more equality. So whether these have adverse effects depends on how we choose to use them, whether we make them available on a market basis, on a user-pays basis, or whether they're distributed according to need. But the point I want to make now is that these things may not just have neutral social consequences or promote equality, they may have radically beneficial social consequences once you start to look at the data. And much of these debates don't look at the real data. They're based on speculations. So here are some of the losses you would avoid if you improved people's memory uh, or improved their attention. So just in the UK per year, there's £250 million lost through people forgetting their keys or losing their keys. Forgotten standing orders in the UK amount to £400 million per month. Okay, so that's not a trivial amount. That's just due to people forgetting. If you could improve people's memory, and there are drugs and interventions now that look promising in improving uh, at least working memory, you could perhaps reduce that. Sleepiness causes 20% of road accidents. Modafinil is very effective at reducing sleepiness. Um, higher IQ reduces accident risks and premature death. Um, there are correlations between having a particularly low IQ and low social um, and economic success. It takes about, about an IQ of 90 to complete a tax return in the US and with an IQ of 120 you can have virtually any job you want. So people with a normal IQ, normal is defined as being over 70 um, but less than 90, people in that range face considerable hurdles in life in terms of accidents and misfortunes uh, and economic disadvantage. Okay, this I think is a... Just look at the right-hand column. I mean, I think this is a very interesting slide. Now, this is, a, this is from a paper by Linda Gottfriedson, and you, you can take this with, with some degree of a grain of salt, but even if these figures are out by a factor of 10, they're still striking. So what, what this slide is based on is, is the experience from the environmental toxin lead, which reduces IQ. So a number of years ago, a number of strategies were, were introduced to reduce the amount of lead that was poisoning, slightly, slowly poisoning children and people and reducing their IQ. So we've got rid of lead from paint and from petrol and, uh, and various other strategies, plumbing and so on. And based on the lead abatement strategies, the predictions are that if you simply increased people's IQ, everyone's IQ by three points, which is a very small increase across a whole population. So remember, the mean is 100. If you increase the whole population's IQ by just three points, you would redu reduce poverty by 25%. You would reduce welfare recipiency by 18%, the number of males in jail by 25%, the number of parentless children by 20%. Now, these, if I said to you, I have a social program of love, care, counselling and social support that will reduce the poverty rate by 25%. People will be jumping up and down saying, why isn't this being instituted? But here is some data that suggests that increasing people's IQ by a very small amount could have those effects. Now, as I said, even if that's out by a factor of 10, the social effects are still significant. It's also significant in economic terms. 
Um, people have estimated that an increase of one IQ point leads to a, a nearly 2% increase in income. And, an in, and for the US economy, an increase per IQ point across the population results in a 50 to $60 billion increase in GDP, in gross, in, um, in national earnings. So the figures can be quite striking. People have estimated, I can't remember the figure exactly, but something like 15% of the US GDP is probably accountable to the computing uh, revolution and the added cognitive power that computers have given human beings. So these sorts of effects, this is a, a graph which just shows um, GDP versus IQ. And there's reason to believe that there's a steady increase in GDP in productivity uh, as well as beneficial social effects with an increase in IQ. So the point here is that these sorts of interventions may have profound effects at a social level that are beneficial. I haven't talked about cooperativeness or less aggression, and these might equally have profound social effects. OK, um, there are costs. I won't go through this. Um, I was asked by a, uh, a group called Allianz to predict what the future would hold and what a five- and ten-year scenario might be. So just roughly, what the scenario may well be is in five years' time, the acceptability of using enhancement um, starts to increase. So sub, some enhancers like modafinil, which is currently in a grey zone, it's available on the internet, um, may, be made illegal, may be made legal and people in um, jobs which um, put others at serious risk for retiredness may be um, encouraged to take them. It may even become obligatory. It will be a satisfactory or um, viable competitor to caffeine. Um, Nutrient enhancement will increase. We've already seen people using fish oil. Choline, which is available in eggs, probably increases the IQ of fetuses that it's given to. Um, tyrosine may increase performance under stress. Um, people will start to do formal safety and efficacy studies of these interventions, which are currently only done for drugs to treat, um, to treat diseases. Designer enhancers may, begun, may begin to be developed, like Ritalin. Um, and at the moment, this sort of research is only done in the military, but civilian research may start to be done in five years. In 20 years' time, we may have a culture change, um, like beer and coffee. Uh, we may make allowances for those who take too much, and we may have norms which define when it's appropriate to enhance. The cell phone culture is an example of a communication enhancement that's developed its own culture and set of norms. It will be routine, perhaps, to engage in dietary, prenatal and paediatric enhancement. There may be some mandatory enhancement and there'll be good data on safety and efficacy. There'll be a widespread market, there'll be smarter delivery systems, implants and infrastructure to support these and so on. Now, that's one possible scenario. Um, enhancers may be as ubiquitous and accepted as coffee, computers and cell phones. All of those enhance human performance. OK, I was asked just briefly to talk about the Australian situation with respect to another area of um, radical sort of new science, um, stem cell science and cloning. And this is another area where the research is very controversial, but it has very significant benefits on offer. Um, this is a slightly old slide because the Human Fertilisation and Embryology Authority in the UK, the body responsible for licensing research in this area, has made a decision... Um, to allow the sort of research that I'm going to go on, go on to talk about. But um, 
a few months ago, it was faced with this um, issue of whether scientists could not just use cloning to produce stem cells for research, but could use animal eggs, eggs from rabbits, with their genetic material extracted and put human genetic material into the rabbit egg and then stimulate it through a cloning process to produce a hybrid embryo, a, a human-rabbit chimera or hybrid, or some people call it a cybrid, um, to derive embryonic stem cells. And this created a lot of discussion. In fact, the Australian government has banned this, even in its revised um, legislation. The chief medical officer in the government in the UK, again, like the Australian government, initially reacted very negatively and in a hostile way to the creation of such hybrids. Um, but 45 leaders of science, including three Nobel laureates and people from ethics and law, including me, signed a letter uh, arguing that the government should rethink its policy on this, and it did, and the research is now allowed in the UK. Now, why is this research important and why is this an embarrassment to Australia? There are two reasons that this research is important. Firstly, this research is um, going down the road of what's called self-transplantation. So the idea is by developing this technology, you could eventually allow people to transplant themselves with their own healthy tissue. So the idea is you have leukaemia, there's no bone marrow or stem cell donor, you could take a healthy skin cell, um, you could uh, clone it, produce... Um, blood cells from that stem cell and uh, be given a transplant from your own healthy tissue, provided there was no underlying genetic abnormality. Um, and this could be used to treat a, a wide range of diseases, not just cancers and uh, malignancies, other malignancies, but, um, but also to treat the degenerative diseases by giving back tissue which normally doesn't regenerate. So after a stroke, Instead of the area of brain being replaced by scar tissue, you could have normal, healthy brain tissue from your own cells. So self-transplantation is, um, or regenerative medicine, is, is a radical new form of treatment that offers huge um, and unprecedented benefits to people. And this form of research is, is helping us to develop the techniques to be able to do that. But more importantly, and this, is, this has escaped many people, this could be used for a second, different kind of research, and it's What's what I've called here, developing new models, new cellular models of human disease. So what you could do as well with this research is take um, a cell from a person with cancer, you could put the nuclear material into a rabbit egg, you could clone it, you could produce tissue with the mutation of that cancer, and because embryonic stem cells grow and grow and grow indefinitely, you could produce vast amounts of this tissue for experimentation. So you could have a whole table full of this tissue with cancer in it, look at it under the microscope, look at it through genetic testing to understand why the cancer develops, bombard it with new drugs, toxic drugs, um, and to see whether they're effective. And you wouldn't need to have a whole animal and all the problems of animal research, and you wouldn't need to do it in a human being at this stage because you've got this human tissue. So this is providing a new resource for experimentation and the testing and development of new drug molecules. Now, when you understand that there are two reasons to do this research, you can see that many of the objections to, to traditional um, cloning research disappear that apply to the use of human eggs. So the first, one, first objection that many people give to doing cloning research is that it harms women. To clone Dolly the sheep took 277 attempts, so if you used human eggs, 
you'd have to get eggs, 277 human eggs. You'd have to use a lot of women that would expose them to the risks of the procedure, which, which are not insignificant and sometimes death. So if you're using human eggs, you will be exposing women to significant risks. If you're using rabbit eggs, you're not exposing women to significant risks. People say that this is elitist medicine, getting your own brain tissue back after a stroke or getting your own bone marrow from stem cell technology is, is elitist medicine that won't benefit most of the world's population because it's expensive um, and it's not going to be available to, to most people. It's irresponsible globally. Well, that might apply to regenerative medicine, but it doesn't apply to developing drug molecules to treat cancer or to treat heart disease or indeed to treat any disease. So the sort of cellular models of human disease could be used for any of these forms of... Um, for any of these diseases. And because you can do much more of it by using rabbit eggs, you're much more likely to be effective. People say, well, we don't need this sort of research because adult stem cell research is, is going to do the trick. Well, it won't produce vast amounts of tissue for experimentation. The ability of adult stem cells to reproduce is much more limited. People say it's unsafe because you, when you get your tissue back, you might get infections or have tissue with genetic problems. When you're developing drug molecules, that, that's not a problem because you'll be develop, developing an artificial purified molecule that will be produced by a pharmaceutical company. So none of these objections apply to the second application of this research, which is so important. So this creation of cybrids or these hybrids is great research utility, but Australia chose to ban it in a recent review. And I can't see the reason for that. For over 20 years, we've already introduced human genes into animals to create animal models of human disease. I talked about the Huntington's rats before, but this is 50% of the NIH budget goes to producing transgenic animals, animals with human genes introduced into them. So the creation of these sorts of cross-species hybrids is not anything radically new. I think um, much of the policy around uh, reproduction and also research involving embryos has been dominated by uh, the religious values of a number of prominent politicians. Tony Abbott has been very prominent about writing about the importance of Christian values in public life uh, back in a year ago, he wrote, uh, he lauded uh, Tim Costello, Brian Harrodin and George Pell in an article to which I responded, I think in The Age, uh, about the role of religious values. Um, but the sorts of Christian values that Tony Abbott is espousing uh, from, a, from a fairly conservative Catholic perspective are not the values that accord for most of Australian public life. Then They don't accord with our laws and practices around abortion, artificial reproduction or embryo research um, and they're stopping very good research from taking place. I don't believe that people in our society, in a democracy, which is not the same as a theocracy, should be forced to conform to the religious values of a minority. So I believe we've got a moral imperative to do this research. If we're concerned about reproductive cloning, we should ban that but not prevent this sort of research from going ahead. Australia went partway when it allowed therapeutic cloning, but it should have allowed this particularly useful application of therapeutic cloning of using animal uh, eggs as a source for the um, research. OK, so the potential gains from human enhancement of this sort of research are extremely significant. Um, people who are the lowest performance in society may well have the most to gain. Um, 
And I believe that this century will see that medicine, medical research and scientific research being used not just to tr develop treatments and preventions of disease, but to make people's lives go better. So most research in this area is going into developing new treatments for cancer and diabetes and Parkinson's disease. There aren't many people strategically looking at how to increase IQ. But if the sort of data that I quickly sketched before represents anything like the truth, there might be significant social and economic opportunities for a country like Australia with hugely developed scientific capability for developing enhancements that not just make people's lives go better but have social and economic benefits. In the future, uh, we may well be able to even more radically alter humans by nanotechnology and artificial intelligence. But certainly um, the door has been opened to biological intervention, biological testing, and my view is that we should rationally evaluate that and ask ourselves whether we stand as individuals and as a society to gain more than we lose, and my belief is in many cases we will stand to gain more than we will lose. Thank you. Well, thanks very much, uh, Julian. You didn't disappoint. <laughs> um, and thanks for leaving plenty of time for discussion. Um, we've got two microphones down the front here, and um, I'd invite you to come down and uh, stand in front of the microphone, anybody who'd like to, uh, to kick off with a, with, with a question. Yes, please. Hi, thanks for a great talk. Katrina Bonfiglioli from the School of Public Health. I'm just wondering what your views are on um, drugs in sport, particularly with respect to the recent Tour de France scandals. Do you think that we should be allowing international sporting competitions to include competitors who are enhanced by drugs? Um, well, I've been looking at this since the Sydney Olympics, and I just... I've got, as I said, I've got a piece coming on this tomorrow in the Sydney Morning Herald, and I did something in the Daily Telegraph at the time of the tour. Um, in a nutshell, um, the problem with current sport is that it's clear that many athletes are cheating. So they're gaining an unfair advantage over their competitors because they're taking effective doping agents. Now, there are two ways of dealing with that. One is to more, and this is the, the, the current orthodoxy and the World Anti-Doping Agency's view is, well, we've got to clamp down and we've got to have more effective testing, we've got to be more vigilant, we've got to pick up the cheats and we've got to exclude them. So you've got to get rid of drugs in sport and run a clean sport. And, you know, to be frank with you, if that were achievable, I'd be all in favour of it. The fact is that it's going to fail, as the Tour de France shows, because the agents that are being used are very subtle. Um, they're going to become more and more difficult to detect as they more closely mimic um, natural hormones and agents in the body. You could now introduce epogenes into... We've, we've done it... Well I, well, I haven't done it, but scientists have done it, in, introduced it into monkeys, and the monkeys express more... Uh, produce more, more red blood cells as a result of the genetic manipulation. So we're not going to be able to, to succeed... So what happens is you have what happens in the tour. People being ejected three stages before the end, the pre-race favourite being thrown out. It ruins the spectacle. Um, people are never sure whether the athletes are really clean or not. 
And the second alternative is to say, let's take a more realistic and rational approach to this and see if we can't reduce the cheating. And you can reduce the cheating by making it legal. So, for example, um, caffeine was a banned substance for many years in the Olympics. It increases the time to exhaustion by 20%. Many athletes were kicked out of the Olympics and taken, had their medals taken off them when they were found to be taking caffeine. It's now legal. We don't have to police it. Um, and athletes are not thrown out if they're taking caffeine. The reason caffeine was made legal is it's safe enough. Now, there are many agents that are pr many athletes are using which are probably safe enough when you look at the risks of sport um, that could be put in the caffeine category. So, for example, EPO blood doping. Um, if athletes doped up to a hematocrit or red blood cell level of 50%, it's not going to significantly affect their health. You wouldn't have all this problem of Vinokurov, the Kazakh rider, being thrown out. And so you could use your limited resources to detect the drugs which were really unsafe and the ones which really corrupted the nature of the sport. So you could start to think which ones will we include and which ones won't we. Now, American baseball, um, I was on the Today program and they had Barry Bonds who just equaled the American home run record. The Americans are kind of obsessed with historical comparison and working out who is the greatest baseballer of all time. Now, clearly, to work out whether Barry Bonds is better than Babe Ruth, you need to have them on a, a level playing field with no performance enhancement. So that might be a reason not to allow steroids in baseball. Might be, might be. But when it comes to the Tour de France and you've got a one-on, or you know, a competition between individuals, what you want to see is during that race whether they're on a roughly equal footing. At the moment, they're not on a roughly equal footing, or we don't know. Um, and allowing some degree of performance enhancement would, would bring the honest athletes closer to the cheaters. The cheaters would still get extra advantages through the unsafe substances, but you'd, you'd narrow the gap. So my belief is that we could improve the spectacle, protect athletes' health, um, and make it more fair by, by taking a more liberal policy that, that banned some substances but allowed others. Um, let me just press you on, on this a bit, um, Julian. Um, I heard you on the radio yesterday uh, pointing out that this is um, part of the culture in cycling. It's been there since, I think, 1904, you said. Um, but uh, does that mean that uh, we, should, we should encourage it or, or allow it? Um, you could argue that... Um, you know, female genital mut mutilation is part of traditional culture in some societies. Um, why should we ban that? Why shouldn't we just regulate it, make it safe and clean? The fact that it's part of culture doesn't necessarily mean it's right. Well, you've got to say, what's this extraordinary crime that is going on um, in the Tour de France when these athletes attempt to take substances that, um, that allow them to improve their performance. Um, if it were the case that it was like female genital mutilation, then we would take a, an absolute stand on it. But drugs have been um, taken ever since humans started performing sport in order to help them to improve their performance, express their excellence. And the example that, that I give is, is um, beta blockers in classical music. Now, classical musicians are allowed to take beta blockers to reduce tremor 
And nobody says that this is like female genital mutilation and that we need to take a kind of a hard line on beta blockers in classical music. They, they see that this allows the artist to express themselves better. And I don't see why the sorts of interventions that are being taken in the tour aren't... You've got to remember, these guys are on intravenous drips overnight to give them enough artificial nutrition and hydration to allow them to continue to compete because they can't drink and um, eat enough given the huge demands they place on their bodies. Ben Johnson said the reason that... Um, one of the reasons, significant reasons, that people took steroids um, was because of the extraordinary demands that modern training places on athletes and the injuries that it creates in order to run the sorts of times that they do. So I, I don't see what the extraordinary crime of taking these substances is, given that we expect our athletes to perform at this level. Um, as I said, if you could enforce a clean policy, fine. The reality is that that's not going to be the case, and it's not clear that this is so alien to the spirit of sport as people want to, to claim it is. So if it were alien, why would we have allowed caffeine? Hi, Julian. Uh, Paul McNeil from the Centre for Values, Ethics and the Law and Medicine here at the University of Sydney. Um, Julian, I'd, I wanted to look at the, the model and the assumptions that you're proposing in support of enhancement. And um, what concerns me here is not so much that we, we would necessarily rule out enhancement uh, per se, and I think it would be very difficult to draw a line in any case between treatment and enhancement, but it does concern me that you appear to me at least to be coming from a relatively simplistic and deterministic model. Um, and if I can uh, draw attention to a few points from your talk, the slide that worried me most was the, the picture, the two slides of the dogs. Um, not sure if you were uh, putting those slides up as a, as a support for your argument or as a, a warning to us as to what was to come if we go down the track that you're advocating. But for me, it gave me um, a very uneasy feeling that we would have a cafe full of people, a bit like in Star Wars, and I'm not sure if that's what you're arguing for. But I would say that most human beings value human identity very highly, and the reason that we, th this is such a contentious area is because we feel very defensive about the nature of what a human being is, and there is a lot of reluctance to create chimeras and so on. Um, the deterministic model... Um, the concern there, for example, you speak a lot about IQ as if um, intelligence is something that we should be um, supporting and that IQ is an, a measure of that. It's very simple to manipulate IQ, simply give people training on arithmetic tests and how to group objects and education will have a much bigger effect on intelligence or IQ than most of the measures you're suggesting. Also, you made the statement that there's not much we can do about hedonic tone. I would simply disagree. I think there's plenty of research to show that there's a lot that we can do about people's happiness through environmental um, uh, approaches. And also that the environmental social approaches are a lot more um, conducive to, to a good life, I would have thought, than putting our faith in the sort of mechanistic solutions that you're proposing. I also I have concerns. I'm sorry, I've got four points here. I have concerns about the we that you talk about. You say how we choose to employ enhancement is up to us. Who's the we and who's the us? And, I mean, we, we already see with Big Pharma what happens when we take a, a mechanistic model to improving human health, that the, 
that the therapeutic um, time-consuming approaches to human difficulties get sidelined in favour of, of a pill because it's much quicker to prescribe and there's a lot of money in that and there's no money in, in spending a lot of time with one's patients. So I'm very concerned about who the we and the us is and who's served by this argument. Um, it's a, it's a clearly a good, good argument in support of uh, major money-making ventures. And then the last point is, what are the assumptions between health and enhancement? I mean, what is the good? What is the um, good life that we're, we're aiming for here? I'd be very concerned about embarking or going down this track without a really a much better understanding than we have at present about what the good life is. We seem to, that, that question seems to have been dropped out of most of the philosophical discussion and the ethical discussion around these points. Well, I, look, I mean, I, there's a lot of things that you said that I agree with. I think the only two interesting, well, not the only, but the two most interesting questions in this are uh, what is a good life and um, whether uh, some intervention, biological, social, cultural, whatever, is going to promote that. Those are the questions that we should be looking at. I mean, I've got a very modest, um, non-deterministic view that says that um, we just should put the biological in on the table with everything else. If you show me that meditation is going to make me happier than taking a pill, fine, I'll do the meditation. But many people see an absolute barrier to the direct biological, and, and I think that's excluding a potentially very valuable avenue of, of altering our condition. I agree with you that it's not going, we are not going to be the product of pills or, or, or biological interventions. It's true. We're only going to be able to probabilistically influence the outcome. But the point is, instead of having this absolute distance from drugs and biology and saying, you know, it's all about our social um, practices and our, um, our environment, we should start to think and take seriously the fact that um, some of these interventions may be of benefit to us. It's going to, and the question of what's a good life, well, I omitted the slides on the different philosophical accounts of, of well-being. But just in a nutshell, it's true that there are huge variances in people's values, but it's also true there's a lot of convergence. So when we seek to educate our children, we employ a roughly kind of consistent set of values um, people don't, you know, think it's a good thing to, to teach their children to beat the hell out of anyone that crosses their path, and that's the concept of a good life. Um, it's not just about IQ, um, but it's, it's about many things that we, we do agree upon. Um, we want our children to be responsive to other people's emotions and feelings. We want them to be able to cooperate. These sorts of things will no doubt need nurturing, but they may be influenced by... Um, by, by biology. Attention deficit disorder is an example where Ritalin reduces the aggressiveness of children with, with that spectrum of conditions. So I don't want to be seen to be saying, you know, oh, if only, you know, this is, the solution is going to be pharmaceutical and we'll just take a pill and everything will be all right and we'll be happy or we'll achieve a good life. But we do need to start to think, what is it that we think is a good life? What are its determinants? And what, and what are the, and, and what does biology have to offer along with everything else. So the example of sexual pleasure um, or sexual performance, 
no doubt there's, you know, very important relationship issues and very important social and personal determinants of that, but there may be biological things like Viagra, like things to help people experience orgasm, that in the future will be available to people, and I don't see why they shouldn't be on the table in the first place for adults to make decisions. So the easiest case, I think, is you make your decision about whether you think this is going to be better for you or not. But even in the case of our children, where the, the values at stake are fairly well agreed upon. So I just want to open the door, really. I don't want to say this is going to be the panacea, but I mean, you've got to make it a bit Hi. Um, I don't have like a title and position to introduce myself with. Um, <laughs> I guess a lot of the debate around these kinds of issues is centred around whether or not to bring, to bring these technologies into existence or into society or whatever. I think you can only think that that's the debate by ignoring history, like, totally. I think it's just quite obvious that these kind of technologies are going to prevail and come into society. So I guess the more important debate to be having is um, what do you think are the most positive and negative possible outcomes um, ethically for society as a whole or, or for individual people of these technologies and what kind of actions can we take to ensure that it's the positive outcomes that do happen and the negative outcomes that don't? Um. I'm not really sure how to answer that question. Um, I mean, one of the slides I got rid of, it, it's sort of downside of this radical technological advance is the sort of research that was done in Canberra um, a few years ago where researchers altered, genetically altered um, a mousepox virus to make it 100% lethal. And they published this research on the internet. And it was pretty obvious that this was a very low-tech experiment and could easily be done with human smallpox and create a strain of smallpox that uh, all of humanity would be susceptible to and that could be used as a bioweapon. So one of the challenges of, of this technological revolution is that not only does it offer big benefits, it offers the risk of, of obliterating humanity. Um, so... Those are the biggest challenges, I think, that come out of this kind of research. How not just we can radically benefit people, but how we can radically harm them or manipulate them and use this technology to, to control uh, and to, to harm people. So I see that the challenge is to be a step ahead of our power to abuse technology. It, it's, it's characteristic of humans that small fractions of them will attempt to, to misuse and, and abuse this sort of technology. And, and as it increases in power, we were talking about Jim Martin before, but he's very big on this sort of topic. Um, as it increases in power, it only takes a very small number of people um, and who might be employing cognitive enhancement or accessing um, advanced technology to, to wreak enormous havoc. So... For that reason, I actually think the issue of moral enhancement, not just biological, but also through traditional educational and, and other means, is a very probably the most important issue. Um, but, but training through education and through cultural change takes a long time to be effective. Uh, and it may be that we 
we in the, in the future see a role for, for biological manipulation to, to improve people's moral character. Now, that might sound ridiculous, but at least I'm in good company. The slide that I cut out was um, the slide from Stephen Hawking, the famous Cambridge physicist who ran a poll um, about two years ago now, where he said, what are the biggest risks to humanity in this century? And this is based on some work by Martin Rees. And he, he, at the end of the internet poll, he, he answered the own, his own questions in, a, in an interview. And he said, you know, the biggest risk to humanity are the risks that have always been there. Asteroid strikes could still wipe us out. Infectious diseases, either man-made or natural, could still wipe us out. Um, climate change could now wipe us out. Nuclear war could still wipe us out. Uh, he didn't mention nanotechnology, but that's often put in the list. And he said, in order to avoid this... Um, and to survive the next 100 years, uh, we need to perhaps to engineer ourselves to be wiser and less aggressive. Now, you know, he's starting to anticipate the idea that we may need to change ourselves to be able to deal with the sorts of power that we have. So I think those, those may be the biggest questions. Uh, I'm Basman Ansari from Centre for Values, Ethics and the Law in Medicine. I just had... Two points. One is that um, you mentioned in both of your answers for the drugs uh, in sport and your answer to Paul that um, we should put biology on the table. We should allow it and then um, let everyone use it. But the thing is that where are you going to draw the line? You said we're going to make some drugs legal and some drugs illegal. But then isn't that exactly the same story we're happen happening now? Like, uh, what are you going to draw the line, and then who draws that line? And we're talking about all, like, um, technologies we have and so far. The second thing, you said that minorities should be overlooked for the benefit of majority. Now, if we overlook the minorities, how can you define majority of the world, then? And what majority we're talking about? Is it uh, people of interest, or how can you define that? Thank you very much. Um, I can't remember saying that minorities should be overlooked for the majority. And, uh, so maybe I should just retract that if I said it, and I'm not sure in what context I said it. Um, so I have had only three hours of sleep. Um, so let me concentrate on the first question, um, the, the issue of where you draw the line. OK, the, you can draw a line at zero, which is the current, basically the current policy, no drugs. Or you can draw the line somewhere else. Okay. And I think that we need to start drawing rational lines, draw the lines for reasons. Okay. So the rules that we have in sport are there for reasons. They're there to allow fair competition. They're there to define the nature of the expression of physical excellence. They're there to protect the welfare of the participants. They're there to provide a spectacle. They're there for reasons. So those reasons will define the rules and drugs can be put within that context. So insofar as they're safe enough and how do you judge safe enough? Well, you look at the risks of professional sport and you realise that you know, gymnasts are made anorexic, damage their bodies, divers become incontinent, people die playing football and you draw a kind of rough level of risk that you think professional sport defines as safe enough and you put that as the line and the drugs which fall on that, that side are banned, the other ones are permitted. Um, spirit of sport, creating webbed hands and feet in swimming would be against the spirit of swimming. But allowing swimmers to have swimming skins is not against the spirit of swimming. 
So you need to understand what the nature of the activity is and which drugs would corrupt that and which wouldn't. So this would be a rational way of drawing the line about which drugs to allow and which shouldn't be. There are, will be policing costs, but as I tried to argue, that if you started to do this, perhaps you'd have more resources to more effectively deploy um, to patrolling um, the boundaries. Um, the current boundary is, is one that we want sport to be a test of natural potential. And as I said, I've got nothing, there's, there's nothing wrong with that view of sport. Um, I mean, it's the kind of view I have of what sport should be. Um, but if that's not possible to achieve, then you might want to rethink what, what your boundaries are going to be and put drugs inside or outside of that. So, again, the, the point is you know, we need to start asking questions. I mean, I was, just did some, some Triple J interview and they were asking about recreational drugs. Recreational drugs is, is, is exactly the same issue. We allow um, one recreational drug, alcohol, but we ban others. So what I want to know is what are the reasons for that? Now, there might be very good reasons, um, but you need to. Uh, my view is you need to have reasons that have some sort of ethical basis, some sort of basis in terms of the values that make sense to all of us. So that's how I can see sort of debate progressing on looking at what we do once we open the door. Um, I think that the context of the minority issue was um, when you were saying that the um, religious values of a minority should not dictate to a majority. Is that correct? Oh, OK. Sorry. I didn't... Right. So, you know, this... I don't know what, what fraction of the Australian population um, holds that the embryo is... Um, a human being with a full set of rights and interests. Um, but I don't think it's a majority. Um, and the point is that you can't form a, a social policy based on that particular view when most people don't share it and their practices aren't based on it. It's a question where you have to fall down. My view, many people try to find a consensus view or a middle position. But what I think is very plausible about the Catholic position, it's very consistent. No abortion, no artificial reproduction, um, you know, no embryo research. It's very consistent. The, the Roman Catholic Church views um, embryo research as a kind of holocaust. And they've used kind of terminology like that. If that's correct, we shouldn't allow any of it. We shouldn't allow abortion, embryo research, artificial reproduction and so on. Um, the other view says, no, this is not the same sort of thing as a holocaust. There isn't a way of reconciling these. Now, in a liberal democracy, I don't see on what basis one particular set of values can be, can, can be the dominant one, unless there are clearly reasons to support that that are overwhelmingly rational. That's a kind of controversial issue. The more, in terms of the enhancement debate, what I think is more problematic is where somebody says, you should work out strategies to deal with your hardships and your depression and your um, plight and not use biology because my worldview says that's the correct way to live a life. When it comes to actions which only affect myself, I don't see how anyone else's values should, 
impact on how I choose to live my life if I'm not harming anyone else. So if I choose to take Prozac because I feel my real self on Prozac, I don't take Prozac, but, you know, if somebody says that, well, that's their decision to make with their life. And somebody else who holds a set of values says, no, this is an inauthentic life and, you know, I don't think that this person should be allowed to take Prozac, fine, don't take Prozac. But as a, as a liberal society that values liberty, I think especially in this sort of debate, we should be giving people much more freedom to make decisions about whether these sorts of things are good for their own life um, than others. Hello, uh, my name is Tamara Lysart. I'm also from the University of Sydney. I'm at the Unit for History and Philosophy of Science as well as the Centre for Values, Ethics and Law and Medicine. You're all here. Yes, <laughs> in a brigade. Um, Julian, um, I sense a little bit of attention in your argument around autonomy and I wonder if you mean to distinguish between those interventions which are made that affect the individual or perhaps even their immediate children to those which eventually will, which will enter the... Um, germline. Because to me it seems that uh, if so, um, if you uh, use the same argument um, that uh, these interventions are beneficial regardless of whether it's for you or for further generations, are you not then um, A, writing on the assumption that the uh, interventions are uh, culturally neutral so that um, something that is a benefit or of enhancement uh, now will always be so? Um, and, you know, does it not um, potentially deprive uh, the liberty, as in words that you just put it in, um, of individuals um, in the future to not be burdened with those um, interventions? Yeah, well, some, so in some cases you've just got to, you know, make a choice and fall on one side of the fence. And you can't... Ha you can't ha you, your offspring will not have two options open to them. They won't be able to choose to to have either, either state. They'll be stuck with one or the other. So intersex conditions is, is sort of an example where you either decide to operate early and the person is assigned a gender and, a, and an anatomy and then grows up with that, or you don't and they grow up with a certain sort of... in a certain social situation, they make the decision for themselves, but often with a, with a degree of, of um, social rejection. Um, I'm not... I'm not arguing for early intervention, but I, I think these are mutually exclusive options. But to take a more benign example, I mean, let's, take, let's assume that your ability to learn languages varies from person to person. And it's, it's biologically... I'm really bad at learning languages, I, and I can't hear the differences. Now, maybe that's just because I wasn't brought up in the right way. Or, but let's assume that there's some biological um, determinant of, of ability to learn multiple languages. Okay, and I'm faced with this choice. Yeah, do I stay myself, you know, hopeless at learning French and Italian and German and Japanese, or do I take this pill that will enable me to learn languages much more easily, but it'll affect my germline and it'll be passed on to my children? They won't have any choice. They'll just be stuck with this ability to learn languages. What's the problem? You know, they're either going to be, and let's assume it's a one-off intervention, so they won't be able to decide to take it themselves or not. Um, they won't have the choice. They'll either be language poor or language rich. Now, you just have to make a choice. Which set of abilities do you, or which life history do you want your children to have? You're going to have to make a choice. And in some cases, we want to consign our children to a future which gives them more choices um, in virtue of that change and or a better life. 
Now, there will be many cases where we think, oh, it would be great if we can just leave it to them to decide for themselves. But there will be some where we can't defer that choice to them. Um, So there will be some cases where I think it's legitimate to pass it on through the germline. So, I mean, are you suggesting that if I um, have a, a gene which predisposes me to episodic depression and the only way of me intervening in that is some way in which the, eradicating that gene will be passed on to the next generation and my children won't be depressed. I should forego it so that my children can make a decision about whether they're depressed or not. I mean, I, I don't see the force of the argument in that sort of case. If it's the case where I'm going to um, have two heads um, and, and my children will also have two heads and I strongly want... That might be something where we say, well, that's going to profoundly affect their lives and it's clearly not in their interests. So one of the sort of standard cases up for discussion at the moment is this case of um, uh, apotemnophilia or, um, what is it, body integrity disorder. So there are some people who go around saying that they feel, uh, they feel incomplete with four limbs and they want one of their healthy limbs amputated and they feel... They feel that they're in the wrong body and that they, they, will, they will feel more whole and more themselves with an amputation. And these people go through psychotherapy and they have drug treatment and in many cases the, this desire persists and they amputate their own limb by putting it on a railway track or whatever. Now, if it's the case that none of these environmental interventions do change their desire and they are happy and feel better and so on with, with, um, with three limbs instead of four... I believe the intervention should be offered to them because they are different to the rest of us and in terms of their own life, their own life goes better in the way that they are, just as people who decide to change from being male to female go better by changing their biology surgically um, and they represent a minority. Do I think they should be able to amputate the limbs of their children based on their idea of what human beings... No, I don't. The child should be able to make their own decision about whether they want four limbs or three. Um, so when you can preserve the choice for the child, you should preserve it. But there will be some cases where you just can't, you can't not affect the child's range of options. Hi, uh, Moira Stevens, again from the um, Centre for Values, Ethics and the Law and Medicine. We came in a coach. This is huge, this centre. <laughs> this is the biggest centre in the world. No, we're just talkative. Um, I really go to your term of better, and you've actually brought it nicely because I was going to discuss because on one of your slides you brought up surgical I use inverted commas enhancement for intersex children and better for whom really is my question uh, kind of globally because there's an increasing amount of research looking at that group of children whereas it seems to have been better for the clinicians for the parents but not actually for the intersex children Um, and there is an argument there as you're probably aware about perhaps changing society that maybe binary gender model is inadequate and we should be kind of looking at that issue in a different way and so my question really is your term the use of the term better throughout your presentation and should we be as I say questioning I'm asking better for whom yeah it should be better for the for the person affected by the intervention so I completely agree with you I was on this intersex project in at the children's hospital looking at the outcome of intersex procedures at the children's hospital and and I came around to the view that actually not intervening um, overall was in the the children's interests. 
um, which was different to, to many of my sort of medical colleagues, more medical colleagues. So I think, you know, I agree with you in many cases um, what are touted as being better for the individual is actually being better for the parents or um, being better for society or the doctors or whoever. That is not enhancement of the individual, that's enhancement of the parents' lives or enhancement of society. Um, now, there may be, in some cases, justifications for doing something to an individual for the purposes of benefiting society. That's another argument. What I was trying to look at is what constitutes a benefit for, for the individual and, um, and whether, that, whether we should prevent that individual from accessing that benefit. But I entirely agree with you about... I mean, again, so getting back to Paul's initial point, one thing I want to stress is that, that, that point that I made about enhancement. You can enhance people's lives in four ways. You can change the natural environment, change the social environment, change their psychology, change their biology. So if, if we can easily um, accommodate children with intersex conditions by changing our attitudes and our practices towards them rather than changing their biology so that they fit our expectations. We should do that uh, and allow them to make their own decisions. So in many cases, the social route is much more preferable to the biological. The point that I only wanted to make was that in some cases the biological route will be, will be a viable one and, and one that we should seriously consider. It doesn't mean that we always need to employ it. Two questions. Um, is it wrong to close off research into human reproductive cloning given the high rates of infertility? Well, um, look, you know, there's, there's theoretical practical ethics and there's pragmatic practical ethics. So um, when, I have, when I have to talk about this to the, to the very general public, I mean, not people like you who actually come to a lecture because you, 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 by definition, won't be the very general public... I always say, and we should ban reproductive cloning because it calms people and um, they feel in, in a kind of a more kind of secure s space to sort of embrace the research and so on. Even though in my heart I, I can't really see the reasons against doing research into reproductive cloning and trying to perfect it as a technique that could be used as, amongst other techniques for, for reproduction. So I... Um, I personally can't see any strong reasons, and again, I've termed this, I've, I've used this term in, in this thing I wrote in, in the UK, clonism, to, um, to characterise the sort of discriminatory attitudes we have to clones. So you see this thing in the UNESCO Declaration on Human Rights and so on, Declaration on Cloning, that says cloning is an affront to human dignity. Um, and I I've never seen um, a very good defence of what that really means, especially in the context that, you know, there are one in 300 births of, of identical twins. I don't see what the offence to human dignity is of somebody existing with a genome that is, is identical to somebody else's. It's, it's not as if that individual is robbed of, of individuality, of autonomy, of an opportunity for a good life. And what makes that individual's life bad are statements like, you are an affront, to, or this represents an affront to human dignity. There's something negative about your life that there's something worse. And it's those social expectations and, soci and social attitudes which create the problem in the same way as 
saying that black people are, are inferior creates the problems when there's no actual underlying biological inferiority. There's nothing biologically inferior about having a genome that's the same as somebody else's. So I don't, I don't see any theoretical reason not to do the research, but I can see practical reasons. And Nico Dwyer from Exercise and Sports Science at University of Sydney. Um, so not ethics. Um, don't I think I ask a question about doping in sport. No, no, it's not about doping in sport. Oh. Though your comments were interesting. I think you sort of turned me around on it. I mean, it's not that I had very strong views anyway. It's not actually something I take a lot of interest in, to tell you the truth. But the, the thing that interests me is, like, your basic thesis is that the biological is not, in principle, any different to, like, the psychological or the pharmacological or whatever, and that if you accept that, then you allow biological interventions, as, you, as you're saying. And it, so it's sort of more a comment than a question. My feeling is that when people first are confronted with this idea they sort of think, where will it all end? They sort of project ahead and you end up with images like of all the breeds of dogs and so on for, for future humanity. And so what scares people is they don't, the, the where will it end and what's the process of regulation? So would you say, therefore, that the process of regulation in this case is no more than the same sort of processes of regulation that we have for all, so all sorts of other interventions we do, such as psychological, social, political, and so on? In other words, the mechanism here is not different to anywhere else in how we regulate how this may proceed in the future. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a very nice way of putting um, the point. <laughs> so it's probably better than I could put it. The choice is ours, um, what sort of future we realise and how we regulate it and what we allow and what we don't allow. That, I think, is the interesting question, like the drug question in sport. Which ones will we allow and which ones won't we allow and Why? And in, in, we're not debating that question at the moment. We're debating the question of should we allow this at all. It's, it's a, like an all or none. You know, will we, with, kind of we pluck out one science fiction scenario and say, well, if we allow it, that's what will happen. Well, it, it could happen, but um, you know, so too could the end of the world through the use of, of current technology. So I think it's the challenge for this sort of area is to start to think more about what the good life is, what sort of society we want to live in, how we can use this sort of knowledge and research to, to bring that about. And that's what I think Australia as a, um, as a you know, a, I think a very liberal and in many ways open-minded country should be taking a lead on um, instead of being bogged down in, in trying to sort of turn the clock back to, the, to times that will be impossible to recreate and, and probably I wouldn't necessarily want to recreate them. I think you'll have to agree with me that uh, Julian's certainly been very stimulating. Having uh, seen his performance on three hours sleep, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering what he'd be like if he'd been taking modafinil. <laughs> Stunning. <laughs> okay. So I'd like you all to join with me very much in thanking Julian for an excellent presentation. Thank you. <laughs>